G'day everyone, it's your host Stefan Angelini for the Investor Types Podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode we're talking about property development. And I was actually interviewed by Mike Mortlock on his Geared for Growth podcast to talk about my property development journey. We talk about the risks it takes, we talk about some of the pitfalls that people find themselves in, and we talk about why I love it and why I love the strategy. So if you're a property investor that likes to push the boundaries, that likes to get active and happy to take on that extra risk, this might be an episode for yourself. What I want to remind you before we get into it is that this is just general information only. It's not considered personal advice or financial advice. If you want to think about doing a strategy like this, go consult your own financial planner. Love to get your thoughts afterwards. Feel free to email me at investortypes at gmail.com. Let's get into it. Stefan Angelini, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Uh, Mike, thanks for having me, mate. Lovely to be here. Where is here? Where is here at the moment? We're all sort of scattered across the different corners of the earth during the pandemic. I said, believe it or not, I got kicked out of home. My wife said, you are just too much stress being at home. You've got computer screens everywhere and we've got a three-month-old at home. So she goes, get your stuff and get out and go back to the office. So as soon as we're allowed to, I'm back in my office in Melbourne CBD, um, which is it's actually refreshing. I haven't got a three-month-old baby crying whenever I make a phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Takes the edge off the professionalism, doesn't it? With your few kids, you know how that feels. Kids burn mm. in the room. Occasionally, I get a little sort of two-foot butler bringing in uh, a banana bread or something, which is lovely. But um, yeah, some inopportune moments. Yeah, um, Stefan, for anyone that hasn't come across you before, who are you, and what do you specialise in? All right, so I'm a financial advisor. Um, I'm a financial advisor that loves property, so I run a business named Angel Advisory. Um, but Traditionally, uh, I'm also a property developer, um, which means that I'm, I am a property lover. Um, so we specialise in giving people development strategies that relate to their specific financial situation, um, but as well as building almost early retirement goals for people. So a lot of my clients are younger. They're not necessarily at retirement age. And we simply create ways that we can use property to, to better their or to increase their wealth. Awesome. And we're going to dive right into that. But beforehand, what were the posters on the wall growing up? Posters on the wall? Uh, When I was young, I used to have times tables on the wall. But as I got a little bit older and entered high school, I realized I was very OCD. So you look at my cupboard, I had my my T-shirts were color coordinated that were hung up. They were perfectly folded if they were folded. My underwear drawer had my underwear folded in perfect squares. And that meant there were no posters on the walls. Bare white. Only recently, wow. my wife has forced me to put paintings on the walls and some artwork, which has changed my world. <laughs> Your wife's not Marie Kondo, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> similar. <laughs> She's an interior designer, so she met me. And typical story: I'm a tight ass. I love saving my money. She loves spending her money. She loves things on walls. I don't like things on walls. And as you know, in a relationship, you need a compromise. Opposites attract. Who said that? Paula Abdul. That was before all the drinking business. Yeah, hundred percent. I like no posters, no posters on walls as kids. But um, where I got my love for property is I used to drive past properties that my family had built. Um, so my grandfather started buying industrial assets back in the day, and they built their own factories to work out of on there. So they come from a tile background. So they just old tiles from the factories that they built, and I was like, that's amazing. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, 
traditional Italians, you know, you come to Australia with one shoe, um, <laughs> save some money and you buy some land. Yeah, there's some, there's something to be said for the immigrant work ethic. Like there's a lot of people that have come to Australia and just built empires and you look at, you know, people like Gary Vaynerchuk for example, he was an immigrant to the US and yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting sort of narrative, but it, it sort of sort of reigns true. What about um property for yourself? How did you get started in property and what was the first investment? Uh, so I built my first property at 19, so I was able to save pretty well and I uh, worked fairly hard before I got to that point. Um, but I didn't, I didn't buy a house. I bought a block of land direct from the developer in an area that I knew was fantastic. So it was a new little estate that opened up just off a freeway in a suburb that I grew up in. So was able to, because the developer was family, I was able to pick it up at a good price before any agent costs were taken involved um, and I was able to settle on that quickly. For them, yeah. um, so I bought that for seventy thousand dollars, held it until it settled, uh, built on it when I was able to, and then ended up selling that a few years later. So um, that's how I got involved in my with my journey, buying the land that was quite cheap, and then building on it straight away, and then selling it. And having the times tables on the wall, obviously you were pretty number focused, so you knew exactly what the sort of outcome was going to happen before you pulled the trigger. I'm guessing. So the land was cheap, which is always good. Compared to anything else in the area, um, knew the area, knew the area like the back of my hand, and just believed that in that location things can't go wrong. There was already housing around it; it was just like an old farm that got rezoned. And I did a similar thing just recently: bought um, an, an old farm that had been rezoned in a great location, and then um, bought the land and built on it. And the value of the property, the value of the land, pretty much doubled within two years. Yeah! Wow. Yeah, if you can sit on something and then have it rezoned, it's a potential gold mine, isn't it? Yeah, well, not even rezoned. It's these some of these older towns. You still got these people that that sit on these four thousand square meter lots. That whether it might be an old farm or an old shed, and it's in a great location, but they've just never had anyone to come through and say, "All right, I'm going to put a road through here and I'm going to drop it up into thirty lots." Yeah, uh, and that's what that's it's still happening out there. Yeah, wow, some untapped potential out there. I, I, I want to start the the structured questions off, um, Stefan, with you being a financial advisor. A few times it's come up on the podcast that financial advisors seem to have like a an allergy to property um, to the point of anaphylaxis. You know, they've got to carry an EpiPen around. If someone mentions property, they've got to jam it into their heart and give them a shot of adrenaline or what have you. But you're all in on property and you're a financial advisor. Uh, you didn't get the memo? What's going on? <laughs> a bit different. Cut from a different cloth. Look, I grew up in an Italian, um, in a big Italian family. We loved a few things. We loved coffee, we loved wine, we loved property. Um, so if- you're, talk- you're speaking my language, mate. <laughs> So if I carried that, carried that through to my professional journey and given my, my personal experiences in property, then I just I wouldn't be doing the right thing. I'd just push directly to shares. But you've got to understand how a financial advisor sits. So a financial advisor's job is not is to both grow someone's wealth and put them in the right investments. But we're very important we don't want to lose people's money. Therefore we, we look at things like diversification. When it comes to property, if you want to diversify, you have to buy a different property in different states or different kinds of properties, so commercial assets. Whereas if you look at investing into shares, you can spend your money, put your money around the world. And it shows in, in a situation recently like um, COVID-19, when that popped up, we've got Australian equity portfolios and Australian property portfolios that have decreased dramatically. 
but mm-hmm. they're more international portfolios that have actually gone up over the time. So they look at diversification, but probably one thing, which is where everyone goes to, is financial advisors are typically rewarded based on the assets that they manage. Right. So if you've got a million dollars with the financial advisor and they invest it all into the share market, they might take a percentage of that asset. Yeah. Which means why would they push you into property? Yeah, because what are they getting there? At best, maybe a kickback if they're using an external provider to flog them something off the plan, perhaps. Kickbacks are gone because there's too much of that cowboy stuff back in the day. Um, as an advisor, now you can't accept any kind of kickback. Right, so, even if it's disclosed to the client? Even if it's disclosed. So the only kickback we're allowed is from insurance policy. So if I see up the life insurance policy, and that's why a lot of advisors don't charge for it because yeah. every insurance company will pay 66% upfront for insurance policy and 22% ongoing. It's like the maintenance. It's almost like a mortgage program would get right. yeah. um, for all the work they do. Financial advisors now are the same. So if I was to refer someone to yourself to, to get a, a depreciation schedule on a new property, I couldn't accept something in return from you. Yeah. Because Royal Commission 2019, they just said, nah, this is all stopping now. Well, the good news is I wouldn't have given you anything anyway, mate, but um, <laughs> yeah, maybe a bottle of, wine. <laughs> bottle, bottle of wine coming your way for sure. My, um, probably with that, you got to understand, so people invest in what they're good at, especially if you're an advisor. So you never expect a buyer's advocate who focuses on property to tell someone to buy shares. Yeah, financial advisors focus on managed funds, stock markets, and things like that. So therefore, they advise on it as well. I can't tell people what property to buy because I don't have enough experience in it. Yeah, and that's that's probably another reason, probably one of the biggest ones. You know, if you want to get if you want to advise people on what property to buy, you better be bloody good at what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder if that's the next royal commission we're going to see is is into some of the buyers advocates. Um, How easy you know, to become a buyers advocate? Well, I I don't know for sure. Um, back in the day, I did a real estate uh, license that was kind of like a year's worth of work. I think you can get it done sort of mostly in a weekend these days. But I don't I I don't think there's a huge barrier to entry. That's for sure. Right. So I'm a massive advocate for buy, for buyers advocates um, because I'm like, if you don't have the time and the time and the effort to put into it, all the knowledge to find a good property, go use someone that is going to, that does it for, that basically puts their blood into it to find you the best property because, you know, it's so easy to find a dud of, of a property. Absolutely. And I think most people do find a dud and that's why they don't end up getting a second or a third one. And yeah, if there's if there's one sort of industry that is featured the most on this podcast, it's probably the buyer's agents um, because they're they're who investors often want to speak to. But with people like yourself, um, as a financial planner, what's your bread and butter style service? Like we know that advisors help fix up our super. Like you go to an advisor and you go, how many super funds you got? Oh, I don't know, 13, 14. You, you fix that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> insurances, you mentioned, we get a little graph that tells us what we're going to have in retirement. And then we go, oh, Christ, we better do something. Yeah. What, yeah. <laughs> what else is there? So, look, a lot of my clients come to me um, if they're approaching that retirement age where they can retire. They typically don't want to, so they're still looking at ways to grow their wealth. So I'm typically on the wealth creation side of things. One of the biggest strategies I work on is how do we retire early? How do we finish up work at 55? The government's not going to let you touch your super money until you're 65, so super might not matter that much. 
Mm-hmm. What assets do we need to last you that 10, 15 years before you can actually get access to your super? And that's where we might look at, all right, well, what, what's our property strategy? What's our direct equity strategy? How much are you earning? So how much you earn and save is direct correlation to how much you can have at the end of the day. And what investment that, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> and it's a direct correlation with that. But um, a lot of my clients also come to me where they've got development properties or a property they want to develop and they just don't have the expertise to cover off everything that's involved in a property or developing a property. So I more sit on the, the finance, structuring, tax strategy side um, where I can work with someone to say, all right, you've done all your numbers. Now, how does it work out from an after-tax perspective? What finance strategy are you going to use and how much cash do you need to develop to do what you want to do? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's it's not the fun stuff, though, is it? Like, I mean, a financial planner is an expert in the strategy and the execution of the strategy. But the fun stuff is, all right, let's start building, you know, let's buy this asset and all that sort of stuff. But often people um, don't have a clear idea about what they're setting out to achieve. And really the the acquisitions and the developments should be sort of subservient to the overall plan rather than vice versa, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. If I wanted to do the fun stuff, I want to become a financial advisor, that's for sure. <laughs> I've got to read. Um, I was working for a client just the other day, and I was reading through um, tax legislation and uh, tax reports. And I turned to my wife, who's an interior designer, and I go, "I'm a bit of a geek, aren't I?" And she looked at this 50-page report I had that was just black writing. She goes, "I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it." Um, so I oh. things as you would from what you do. Yeah, I know it is sad. And uh, it's amazing we got we both got married. Um, so yeah, my my biggest goal is to not screw that up. Let's talk about your property uh, journey. So after you purchased the property at, at nineteen, and, and and focusing sort of before you got into the development side, because I want to pull that apart separately. What what did you do with property after that first acquisition? So I walked walked away from that property quite profitable and with a bit of money. So. I, I went a little bit into the, the share market, so international equities and Australian equities. But then I actually, believe it or not, I bought an apartment off the plan. Right. Yep. Apartment that's off not the something plan. That, uh, this that, is, <laughs> normally we're, uh, that's where we sort of go, yeah, cut yeah, Stefan. He, he's, he, he's out. He, he doesn't get it. In life, you learn from your mistakes. So I bought it at a time where actually apartments had done quite well because apartments weren't huge in Melbourne. Uh, people I'd known had bought a really good apartment. They bought it for eight hundred grand. It had been revalued four years later for one point four. Yeah, that like, sounds it's good. A beautiful place. And I go, this place, it's beautiful, great, good builder, got city views, great location, fifty meter walk from the beach, can't go wrong. I settled. The bank goes, we need another sixty grand. I'm like, okay, all right, this is not fun. <laughs> we need more money. Um, and then I moved into it and I'm like, oh, wow, probably this isn't a great, great idea, having a really big debt, moving into a property that I can't afford. So I got a housemate to try and help me with the repayments. Um, eventually, I moved out and sold it. And while depreciation was great on the property, body, the costs to hold it were too high, way too high. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, after about four years of being in there, I ended up selling that and I broke even. Not even. I think I was losing the money. Um, I got so, uh, once it's built, I looked around. I'm like, "What do you mean? There's other places exactly like this going up around the corner." So, hey, look, 
that's my ne- that was my next property journey. And while I was in that, I realized how much I stuffed up and I actually went back to building and developing. Yeah. I had it until I could get rid of it and then go help forever at what I wanted to do. And and so you you had a bit of schooling with your your family in development. How did how did you get started? Because I'm I'm interested in the notion that property investors sort of get to a point where they want to become developers. It seems like that natural next aspirational step. You know, like I've got a couple of investments now. I want to build a duplex or do a few townhouses. I want to stand back and go, look what I created, <laughs> and you know, sort of marvel in my own magnificence. That's probably being a little bit silly, but there's definitely there's definitely this drive for property investors a lot of them to go into development so how did you do that and do that successfully how did you start um so i learned a lot from building that first house from what's required from a planning perspective to get the subdivision through um but basically my brother and my father were already doing some developments so they come to me and say why don't you get involved with us and i go you know what that's a great idea so i've actually got a brother who's a builder um, and my father's been around doing things for a long time. So I jumped jumped on board with them. Now, before getting involved, I thought, well, this is going to be easy. You know, if I'm going to develop a property, buy a site, understand how much it's going to cost to build, go ask the town planning for actual, um, for a permit and I'll be able to build it and sell it. No worries. I'll be out of it in a year and a half. But I realized quite quickly that's not the case. So, but I was lucky I had those people with me to guide me through it to say that, no, while you think developing is like this and it's nice and simple, you've got to negotiate with council. You've got to pay people before you actually start construction and you've mm. got to work out how you're going to sell these assets. Can you, can you, yeah, I mean, I don't want to sort of smash anyone's hopes and dreams, but can you run us through some of the, the revelations that you, that you had? Why, why it wasn't that simple? You, you talked about um, the consultants pre-construction, um, maybe starting with that. Who, who are we talking about and what are some of the costs before you start turning clods over? Yeah, well, you know, you've got, you've got costs for an architect. If you don't want to pay for an architect, you pay for a draftsman. You don't want to pay for a draftsman. You try and design them yourself and go to council and say, hey, Mr. councillors, um, will you please accept my designs? Um, you've got to pay for, if you've got a bigger site, you need to pay for a town planning consultant who's actually going to draft the application for you. Um, mm-hmm. Every site, if you're going to do subdivision, needs a land surveyor to tell you whether or not you can actually chop the site up. You need to pay for lawyers to draft agreements. You need to pay for an accountant to set up new structures. Uh, so the, they're just some of the costs or some of the pre-development costs for consultants before you actually get involved. And as you start becoming quite bigger, the cost of consultants becomes even larger. So uh, you've got to consider engineers. Yep. Um, now, every application actually requires a stormwater management plan. We've got a site that we just had to get a, um, an Aboriginal heritage report. Wow. That costs us another five and a half grand. Stormwater management report costs us a lot more money. Uh, traffic engineers is another one. Um, yeah. So when, you, when you're building a few, you need to actually say that, well, if you're going to have all these cars in your property, how's that going to affect the traffic in the area? Yeah. Um, and you need these reports before you lodge to council to get your permit. So, so typically, what sort of costs would be would we be talking about? Like, I mean, if you're doing three townhouses, you might not necessarily need, um, you know, an, an Aboriginal sort of artifact survey or traffic management plan. But if we're kicking our developing career off, are we talking, you know, with the town planners and the consultants, we could be in the tens of thousands of dollars before beginning? 
Easy, easy. So you don't always need a track. So one of the people you probably don't need all the time is town planner if it's a small site because you can go and consult with council yourself. Yeah. So this is what I've got. How do you feel about it? Is there a way we can work together on this? Let me know what you want me, what you want me to change. You need to pay for that draftsman and depending on how complex the plans are, that will cost money. Um, and the Aboriginal Heritage Report is a must and normally the Traffic Management Report is a must. Now the Stormwater Management Report is a must. So definitely right. tens of thousands. Um, and I typically tell my clients if it's going to be a small development, allow for forty dollars to $50,000 just to get the plans approved because even yeah. lodging with council is going to cost you money. Yeah. Um, that's before yeah. we get into the whole getting ready for construction part. Yeah, okay. So All right, so five money. You, you certainly are coming across as the development fund police. So <laughs> let, let's um, let's get let's get past the consultants and and let's say we budgeted for that. We're, we're going we're going to into the construction phase. We've got let's say um, here's another annoying consultant. You might have to pay for a quantity surveyor to to do an estimate. But let's say you 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 know you've got a good builder that you work with and and you know you think that um, they they're going to be able to get a good price and you might chuck it around, chuck the plans around to a couple of other people. What are some of the things that we need to consider when we're starting that construction phase? Um, so starting the construction phase, what a lot of people, where a lot of people trip up is they choose the cheapest builder. Um, now with the cheapest builder, there's a few issues. That builder normally might stuff up, um, which means you've got to pay for a new builder to come in to fix it, or that builder might go bankrupt. And that's what we've been seeing a lot in the last few years. So these builders that have come in for a cheap price have gone belly up, and now the developer has to go and pay for a new builder. But when it comes to getting ready for that construction part, well, you need to consider a few things. Like you need to get working drawings for the construction. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to get more detailed engineering reports or engineering drawings um, so that the builder knows exactly how they're going to qu- quote up the job. Yep. Um, you need, might have to pay for a quantity surveyor to know how much the construction might be. Um, but even when it comes to finance, you need to, a lot of the times you need to pay an application fee. So, yep. so finance applications, they will say, well, if you want, if you want to use us, you need to pay for a quantity surveyor, you need to pay for legal costs, and you need to pay for um, the actual obtaining of the finance, which is called a, a line fee or an application fee. Yeah. So they're just some of the some of the extra cash requirements that's going to take you before you even get your money to develop to construct. Mm. And the the you raise a really good point about the 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 builders going bankrupt. It's something that happens a lot, and and even sort of structurally, they might sort of decide to go bankrupt and then appear in a different entity. And getting your money back or getting any money back is is near impossible. Plus, yeah. if you're getting a new builder, it's not like if one builder did thirty percent, then you're just paying seventy percent on what's left. That builder has to take on the liability of the works that the previous one has done. So the costs are not, they're not going to add up to 100%. You're going to be way over that, right? Like that's something that people don't realize. Yeah, that's right. So, as oftentimes, if you go and buy a cheap car, that cheap car might break down and you're going to pay even more to get it fixed or brought up to scratch. And that's right. The builder has to go back and look at what, what, what's been done before and say, well, am I willing to take this on? For the existing profit margin, a lot of times it's no, and that's where people like in a in a development construction cost. You can almost say you can make that quite fixed because you can lock in fixed price contract. Yeah, unless you hit rock, which is that sucks. Um, yeah, or if the builder goes bankrupt, and that's the they're the only times that the construction costs actually really blow out. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and 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 certainly you can you can assess the variations yourself and make sure that that's all that's all reasonable with with some experience, obviously, and or having a brother who's a builder, you can say, "Get out of town, we're not paying you for this." <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that sure that comes up. So um, now we get to the point where we've got to sell whatever it is. Let's assume that we're we're doing a, a residential development and we've got say a couple of townhouses. I mean, that sort of seems pretty simple. We got it. We got it built. Let's say we have to. We want to sell pre-construction or during construction, post-construction. What are the different nuances there, and and any difficulties we can run into throughout the process? Uh, yeah, so uh, pre-selling, uh, people often don't want to do it because you take a hit on your profit margins. Um, for instance, I had a site we had four townhouses, we pre-sold three. Come settlement time, which was twelve months later, uh, we could have made say an extra three hundred grand if we kept them and sold them at the end of the project. Then the next site we went on to, we're like, oh, no, we'll just build four townhouses and we'll hold on to them and sell them at the end. Turns out the market had turned. We hadn't locked in our risk factors and we couldn't really sell them that quickly. Right. Sometimes you're left holding the ball, some might say. Um, But when it comes for doing your actual strategy, for pre-sales, you need to factor in, well, what sort of a sales agent am I going to use? Am I going to use a... A buyer, uh, a seller's agent, or or a, a, do a selling marketing campaign where someone might take say thirty grand per townhouse or thirty grand per property, or am I just going to go to the local real estate agent, sell them through them, who might take two percent or three percent? So you need to factor in different things into your strategy. And normally with pre even pre sales, you need to pay the agent who sells it upfront. You need to pay for marketing costs. If you want to sell construction, same thing. Um, whereas yep. at the end of construction, you can just go through a normal marketing campaign. Right. Yeah. Pay for furniture, get it in there, get your new photos done, make it look pretty, and then just run through the normal selling campaign. The only issue is, is that if you've got your townhouses that are coming up at the end of a project, then there's no, um, what they say, that there's no immediate demand because there's four. It's almost like, yep. you know, the fear of missing out. There's no scarcity because you, you know, we've got four of these, you know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so there's no there's no immediate demand. There's no immediate want for someone to go, oh, I don't need to get this one. I can just get the next one. Yeah. So they're the kind I'm, of things you need to think about. I met the guy that started um, Kentucky Tours and ah. he um, he got started, basically he wanted to travel around um, Europe for free and he put some posters up in some boarding houses or, you know, backpackers and he didn't really get any nibbles until he put one up that said only two seats left. And he wrote a book titled Only Two Seats Left. So, like, that scarcity thing is is really, really important. And that's part of the reason why some um, apartments sort of struggle from a capital growth point of view, right, because there's, there's so many of them that are so similar that it can be a bit of a problem. Yeah. And similar ones might pop up around the corner. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... Um, you, you touched on an interesting point, and that is you had two examples where the market was doing well and then the market turned. How do you sort of factor in that sort of risk given the time frame of a development? Typically, how long would it take to build three townhouses and, and really what can the market do in that amount of time? Well, what you know over the last few years, if we're recording this in May 2020, we know that. In the last three months, the market has taken a dip because of coronavirus. Um, in the last 18 months, it took a dip because people just didn't know what was going to happen in the property market. So the market's changed. Oh, that was because of finance. That's right, because of the Royal Commission. Yep. 
the market changes so quickly. And while you have a strategy, I guess, when it comes to developing, you have to be nimble. But most importantly, you've got to be willing to build stock and, and be able to hold it at the end of the project in case things do go wrong. Yeah. Otherwise, if you're forced to sell, you're going to be forced to sell at a loss. So why not yeah. develop in a location that you love and develop stock that you would be willing to keep for the next 20 years? How many sort of beginner developers, for want of a better term, would would have the capacity to hold an asset if it wasn't a good time to sell? Do you think most developers, when they're starting out, they wouldn't necessarily have the cash available to hold onto something if the market tanked on them? You'd hope so. Um, you'd, that, you'd hope so. But a lot, a lot don't. And this is where you see the horror stories come up that, you know, I lost money on my development. And a lot of people do lose money because it's stressful, it's hard, and there's so many changing gears within it that could mm. cause lose money especially because you got that that time frame that you want to meet um having the cash is so important but a lot of the times even now finance they want to see an exit strategy or they want to make sure that you can hold them at the end of the project Mm -hmm. the only issue is that people might encounter the refinance costs if you have to go through that because what's happened at the moment is it's not cheap to get finance especially Mm -hmm. if you're a business owner yeah or you're trying to develop if you're a developer getting getting access to residential property finance is quite cheap Development and construction finance is a different kettle of fish. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it seems like the appetite has never really come back post-GFC even for development finance. That was kind of like the gold rush back then, but that's quite some time ago and it's still sort of a competitive market, right? Yeah, it's getting, yeah, it's, it's getting, it's getting harder and harder and harder and banks' requirements are, are, are tightening up and they're saying, well, yeah, we know you make good money and back in the day, back in 2008, we would have given you the money. And I, mm. I talk to my older clients about this all the time. They go, why, why won't the bank give me money? They used to be <laughs> back in the day. I just tell them I own this much money and it's all fine. I go, yeah, I know. But banks talk to each other now. They know you've got 20 credit cards and they know you've got four properties over there. Mm. But That's they won't because you've got too much debt because you can't show them that you're going to pay the debt back. So, Stefan, you've you've given us some very good insights into what can go wrong with property investing, or or at least things that people need to consider. But let's let's finish this sort of development module on a positive. You can make money and serious money, right? We've all seen sort of Timmy Gurner in the news giving people crap about you know smashed avocado and stuff, and that bloke looks absolutely minted. So. What- <laughs> What can what can people expect if if they are uh, successful in investing in property? Uh, so, well, you only go into a development if you can see some sort of a profit in it. Um, I know myself; I reinvest all my profits, so I'm not looking to pull money out of it. I want to build up some sort of a legacy portfolio, um, and probably same with Tim Gurner. That's why it just keeps churning along. When it comes to actually what numbers do you want to look at in order for the development to work? So there's two main things you need to look at. So the return on your money and the actual profit on the project. So when you look at the profit of the project, you want to look at, well, so if, if all my costs add up to $2 million and I walk away with $2.5 million, I've made a $500,000 gain on my $2 million spent, therefore I've made 25%. You typically want to look at maybe anywhere between at least a 15 to 20% profit on a project. Right. Then there relates to, all right, what's the return on my cash? The return on my cash is, well, how much finance can I use and how much debt can I use so I don't have to use my own money? Yeah. That you want to target 
because if you can debt up a property or debt up a, a development, you can you want to target a return of somewhere between fifty and eighty percent, sometimes higher. We like to target a hundred percent return if we can, but you've got to think about it over a time frame. So while on the entire project, that might be the the goal of the return. You got to if you work it out on a per annum basis. So if you've got if you're earning if you want to get an eighty percent return on your money over a two year period, that's forty percent per annum. Right. And that's what a lot of people typically don't don't think about when they go to develop. They, they might think, oh, I'm going to make 30%, 30% on this development. It's going to be great. All right, but how much money are you making each year? Mm-hmm. And that's where this this young Stefan with his times tables on the wall um, and, of course, your, your financial planning degree has a little bit of an advantage over the average developer, right, because that's the way your brain is trained. Yeah, look at the numbers um, but understand the strategy the, the probably the biggest thing is well you might do your numbers do your numbers understanding your strategy and your sales strategy and then pop in what is your after tax return and after GST return right because a lot of people don't realize is when they sell a property and they develop it and they sell it they're running a business so they need to pay GST on the sale mm-hmm. they can claim GST along the way which is great um, but they also need to pay taxes at the end of the project. Unless, you're re- unless you've got a structure set up where you can reinvest those profits, you don't have to pay taxes. But if you're just developing through your own name or through a family trust and you want to claim a 50% capital gains tax exemption, then you're going to be paying tax. Yeah. So take that into consideration because so many people forget about their after-tax return. That's what really matters because yes. that's how much you're going to be left with. Yeah. It's all very well to sort of stand back and say, I built that, but... If your return was 5%, then you probably could have done it with a lot less stress and grey hairs and legal disputes. You want to say, I built that and I made money off that. Yeah, that would be even better. <laughs> now, Stephen, you've got a fantastic initiative called Investor Types, a snappy little podcast. I must say I love the little graphic where the bull sort of charges in and headbutts things. That's, um, that's very sharp. Um, you've had some amazing guests on it as well. What was sort of the motivation for that and, and what have you learned along the way with some of the gurus you've had? First off, trying to organise people to do your own graphics is not my forte. So right. they mean more hair than a development. Um, so Investor Type Podcast, it's essentially a lot, my main role is helping people set up their investment portfolios to understand what investment is right for them. And when I come across them, I normally look at their superannuation. I go, why is your super there? And a lot of people say, I don't know. It's just that's where it is. And then I look at their portfolio and everyone's got those few little stocks that they might have invested into back in the day, whether it's a mining company or whether it's some sort of a tech startup they wanted to get into that they thought they were going to make money on. And I go, it's getting a bit too close to home, I've got to say. Yeah, that's right. Everyone, <laughs> everyone I've got them. <laughs> everyone's got them and ask them, why do you have that? And they go, because my mate Joe said that it was going to be a good investment and they were about to discover some sort of oil, oil refinery and it was going to make heaps of money, but it never made any money. I'm like, Okay, cool. It's not investing. Didn't do it right. <laughs> yeah. um, or you, there's a lot of people that are bandwagon supporters out there. So you're a rugby fan. When Melbourne Storm's winning, everyone in Melbourne wanted to be a Melbourne supporter. Mm. Jump on the Storm bandwagon. Then they got done for the salary cap. Preaching. Yeah. Premiership is gone. Uh, if you're a Parramatta Eels supporter, I'm sorry. You didn't get top successes from breaching salary caps. Um, but people jump on the bandwagon, and that's what happens in investing. So there might be Bitcoin driving up at the end of 2017. Everyone started buying Bitcoin. Yeah. 
And then all of a sudden, what happened? It fell from grace. It fell from the sky. People lost a lot of money. Now they're stuck there. Yeah. You know, in the property environment, back in 2008 to 2010, people buying into mining towns. Mm. Everyone was making money, so there was a rush towards mining towns. But then everyone said, hold on, what do you mean people actually don't want to live here or can't live here? Prices <laughs> 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 dropped, but a lot of people done their dough. Things yeah. happen in the share market. So the podcast is simply about educating people on a certain type of investment, allowing them to learn from experts and see how that's positioned for their personal portfolio, whether it's for capital growth, whether it's for income. What are they trying to get out of it? And that's essentially what it is. So we're interviewing heaps of smart people and we're getting, we're getting you on the podcast, which I'm excited about. Um, heaps of smart people up until me and I've, I'll ruin the <laughs> I'll ruin the average for you, but um, I appreciate the invitation nonetheless. Running a business and a podcast is a type of investment. Um, I see there's typically four ways that people invest their money. They invest money into themselves and that's to run a business and start a business because, as you know, running a business takes your own money. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can't go out and buy heaps of properties and shares. They might invest into property and that goes into property development, commercial properties, residential property. They might go into share markets in Australia and around the world. That is also fixed income as well. Or they might go into alternatives, so the Bitcoin scenario. So if we can educate people on those all different types of invest, investments where they, where they invest and speak to the gurus, the guns, the people that do this on a day-to-day basis, then hopefully at least we can educate people before they take that next step and hopefully keep people from making the wrong move. Yeah, I love it, and and congratulations on the work um, so far. I think it's a it's a great show. People should check it out. Once again, it's called Investor Types. Now, changing direction for a second, your typical investor owns one property, as we know from the the ATO stats, and I assume a lot of the listeners or my listeners are in the same boat. Can you give us some advice on the best way for people to grow their portfolio, i.e., their net wealth? Right. So I'd say, the more you save, the more you have. If you're able to save money, if you're able to save money, that's step number one. Uh, you need to be able to earn money, save money, so that you can make that next investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's as simple as that. All the best advice I've found is is remarkably simple. It's not the sort of stuff that sells books or gets us, you know, some nice little click clickbait. You know, Stefan Angelini says you've got to buy Bitcoin and you've got to leverage your mortgage, but that sort of stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm clicking on that. That sounds interesting. <laughs> save money. That's what you're saying. <laughs> the, old school, the old school Italian method. I went to my grandmother's the other day and she still she sees coffee on sale and she buys 30 tins of coffee. Go, Why do you do that? She goes, I'll save five dollars per tin. <laughs> okay. The more the more you buy, the more you save. Yeah, so <laughs> the, the old school, save more, uh, you're able to put yourself in a position to buy the next place. Um, if you want to really ramp your wealth up, you can always use other people's money to invest or combine your funds with other people. So when you've got uh, a lot of people purchasing, it gives you more purchasing power. So you can, if you've got 10 friends that all want to do the same thing and you've all got 50 grand each, all of a sudden you've got $500,000 to play with. Yeah. You need someone to manage those relationships. You need to make sure that everyone's in it for the same reason and doesn't need access to the cash. It's more of a, it's riskier, but there is that's a that's a way to sort of fast track it. And I guess that's even what I do with my own developments is I have other people's money working alongside mine. Um, but probably the best thing is just know yourself and know your strategy. So if you're an ambitious person and you want to get to that next level, you're probably trying to drive your income more and more and more. Therefore, you can take on riskier strategies. 
But if you are just a someone that's just happy to, to cruise through, make an income, you're very, you very you care about your family, then take your time with your investment. Don't try and go in too far over your head. Don't try and debt up too much because essentially what eventually might happen is you might have to sell an asset because you need access to the cash. Yeah. And that's, that's never a good thing is to be forced to sell because the timing might be wrong, the market might be terrible. But if you're in that position where you're backed into a corner, that that's a really important thing to avoid, right, having the cash buffer. And I think maybe the, the pandemic is going to have a lot of investors rethinking their cash buffer, right? That's right. And I see so many people, and that's where it fails, when you don't have that cash buffer or that ability to write out a scenario or you need access to cash. And this is some of the problems with property. If you need access to the money, you cannot sell a bathroom. Yeah. I wish you could. <laughs> yeah. People build up share portfolios on the side because you can sell a few thousand dollars worth of shares if you have to. Not locking too much of a loss, but if you're going to sell a property, you're going to sell the whole thing. Yes. If you're selling in a depressed market, I'm sorry. Mm. You're stuck. Yeah, so that's just the way it is. In your experience um, as a financial advisor, is there anything that you see investors just getting wrong all the time that makes you want to sort of smash your forehead on the desk? <laughs> People invest just because they've been told that they have to invest. Yep. They buy a property, and then you, probably, you probably would have seen it. People go on looking for property. They know, all right, I'm ready to buy a property. I'm going to go and get one. They lose out at three, four, five, six auctions or, or three, four, five, six offers, and then they just buy up a property they don't like. They've overspent for it and there's actually not much profit to be made. Mm. Or they've over-leveraged themselves and they've gone too hard, too quick, and not considered what's going to happen in the next five years. Yeah. And then that's where they have to lock in losses or they have to sell things or they've got to ask people for money in order to make it out of the end. So it all, it all comes down to know, know your strategy, have the cash ready, but be patient. I mean, I know in 2018, Property prices were through the roof. Construction costs were edging up higher and higher and higher. I think I knocked back about 100 development opportunities because the feasibilities just didn't stack up. Wow. You're going That's to be patient. Be patient. That's right. Wait for something good to pop up because you're never going to make more money if you buy a site well. That's how you're going to make your best amount of money. Buy yeah. well, buy cheap. I was talking to a really seasoned developer um, and they started developing in the 90s. They do Greenland subdivisions. And someone turned to them and said, Hey, where do you get your property knowledge from? How do you know what property to buy? He goes, I know what property to buy when it's cheap. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fair enough. So buy something cheap and make sure that you can last through the journey with it. Um, and that's taken into consideration your future goals. What do you need your money for? Whether it's having a kid, expanding a family, going on holidays, do you need that money or can it sit in that asset that you've got? Yeah. They're, well, I mean, I, I personally need a, one of these wood grain clocks and uh, <laughs> they look expensive. So at least I've got, you know, I've got a carrot to chase. Battery for, operated. <laughs> battery operated, right. Um, for, purple, for people that are, are chasing an investment, are there any sort of typical types of properties that you would, you would go for as an investment philosophy? So putting the, putting the development stuff to the, to the side, are you, a, you know, house and land sort of guy are you a blue chip in the city is it more about scarcity are you an off the plan guy i know you've got form but i presume you've you, you you've maybe changed angles <laughs> mate thanks for embarrassing me again i was trying not to ruin that moment too much but hey you learn from the past um in terms of what property i like to buy like i like to buy property in areas that i know um, i'm a big fan of pounding the pavement when it goes to buying the property 
Yeah. Step one is know your strategy. So income versus growth. Is it an income play or is it a growth play? Uh, if it's an income play, I've been looking at things like rooming houses lately. Yes. Uh, drive a great amount of income. They're doing really well for us. From a growth perspective, sort of small townhouse developments are out of it because construction costs are too high and it takes too long to get permits through, whereas commercial developments like childcare centres and even factories are still going quite well. So that's the growth play. But still, it comes back to know the area you're buying in. That's that's what I see as the biggest thing. If you know in, in where you live, you could probably look at five streets away and you know you might not want to buy in that street. Yeah. So knowing a specific locale and a specific area is so important when buying a property. That's the only really advice I can give out. Other than that, go speak to a buyer's advocate who will go and find you the right property for you. Good one. <laughs> Good one. I, I like that. Now, Stefan, if, if people are wanting to get in touch with you to have a chat, what's the best way to do that? Uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. So Stefan Angelini on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there. Um, I've got Instagram at Stefan Angelini. Nice and easy. Now, we've uh, maybe touched on this already, but just to finish the show off, if there's one piece of advice that you could impart to property investors, what would that be? Um. I'm a planner, so I'm going to stick to the plan and the strategy. So have a plan and have a fold these underpants neatly <laughs> just to finish. That's one. And iron them if you can, if you get the chance. Oh, jeez. <laughs> have, have a plan, have a strategy in mind. The only way you really learn in life, I believe, is if you fail. From those failings, you become so much better. So if you're, if you're ambitious and you're willing to fail, but you know that even if you do fail, your strategy and your plan can just continue on. You can learn, get better from it. Then you're going to just, I think, thrive throughout life. Plan, strategize, be happy with what you're going to do. The financial planner says, "Have a plan." Who yeah, who yeah. could have seen that, that coming? There's our clickbait article. <laughs> it's, it's um in in all in all seriousness, you've imparted some absolute gold today, and 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 thanks for your your time and your patience and your good humour. It's been a lot of fun, and I'm sure people will get a lot out of it. Thanks, uh, thanks very much for joining me, mate. Really appreciate you having me and and putting up with my pretty much. <laughs> Cheers. All right, take care. Bye, mate. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Investor Types Podcast. What I want to remind you is that everything you heard in this podcast is general advice only. Please don't consider it as personal advice. If you do want to consider consider it as being personal advice, please go and speak to your licensed financial planner. Everything here is just informational purposes only. Take it as you will. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon.